Father, I add my amen to that prayer and only add that you would anoint the proclamation of your word, bypassing the inherent limitations of the vessel that brings it, and that you would anoint the hearing of each individual so that you bypass our sinfulness and our limitations, that you would do a miracle in the proclamation and a miracle in the hearing such that the infallible, inerrant, powerful, preeminent, and always effective word of Christ our Lord in written form and in spoken form might achieve that which you intend to convict of sin, to lead us in righteousness, to equip your church, to condemn the lost until they repent and believe and to uphold the lordship of Jesus Christ such that a suitable throne is here among the worshiping saints that the world might know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. They deny him at their own peril, but they surrender to, the, to him unto the hope of eternal life in his blood alone. I pray as we read your words and as we hear them expounded that you would equip and encourage us to stand strong in a day when the enemies abound, yet your word with its power as a two-edged sword and the armaments that accompany it, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and so forth are nevertheless sufficient. Remind us of these things, Lord, and may you be glorified in this service unto the praise of your name and the advance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, what a privilege and gift that we have in the Holy Word of God. And I encourage you to turn there with me by opening your Bibles to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 will be our text this morning. The first portion of the psalm, verses 1 through 27, will be our primary focus today. The title of this morning's message is, What the Wicked Forget. What the Wicked Forget. There is a long list of an, an indictment, as it were, of the number of times, of a number of times in the history of the covenant people of God, where in their wickedness they forgot the Lord's work and His attributes displayed among them. Thus, that they had lost the very purpose of God's sovereign intervention, which was to glorify Himself and to reveal Himself to His people. These are things the wicked forget, but conversely the righteous remember. The aim of this morning's message is, therefore, to call the church to biblical remembrance and worship, to call the church to remembrance and worship. I believe that is the primary thrust and purpose of Psalm 106 this morning. So would you stand out of reverence once again for the reading of God's word today as we hear in our ears the eternal word of the Lord beginning in Psalm 106, again, verses 1 through 27. Here is the infallible word of God. Praise the Lord. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord, or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice and do righteousness, righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, 
that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Verse 16, when, the peop- when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered up the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flame burned up the wicked. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised up his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 106 completes a set of four historical psalms, Psalm 103, 4, 5, and 6, recount events from creation through the occupation of Canaan as occasions for worship and reflection. The history of God to His people as occasion for worship and reflection. This morning we have both a call to worship in verses 1 through 5 and the call to reflection verses 6 through 27 in Psalm 106. Thus, Psalm 106 is the closing chapter of Book 4 of the Psalter. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but notice at the end of Psalm 106, 48 in your Bible, you'll see likely between verse 48 and Psalm 107, 1, this title or this heading, Book Number 5. Yes, it is true the Psalter is divided into five collections of songs, five books. So Psalm 106 closes as the final chapter of Book 4 with a sort of anguished tone and ominous note. This note of anguish under the just discipline for sin and covenant faithfulness, however, will be eclipsed as the tones of the final book, Psalm, uh, Psalm book number five, give way to the glory of God always triumphant in spite of his people's unfaithfulness. The glory of God always triumphant in spite of the people's unfaithfulness. Historical psalms are centered around eras of history that serve to illuminate the relationship of the Lord with his people. We have reference to a number of historical events, actual happenings in time, to illustrate the relationship, the nature of the relationship between the Lord God and his people. The occasion for this psalm would appear to be exile. So when was the author writing? Perhaps in the Babylonian exile. Verse 47 gives us a clue in this regard. Save us, the author says, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. Even as he had Uh, noted the prophetic word of God and the consequences of covenant breaking in verse 27 when God says that he would make their offspring fall among the nations scattering them among the lands 
The occasion of this song would thus appear to be exiled. The sins of the people have caught up with them, driving them from the peace and prosperity, the hope of Canaan, into the chains of their enemies. Yet they are not without hope. If they remember the Lord, they have reason to be encouraged that there is reason again on the horizon to hope as the Lord promises to redeem, to save his people, even return them to the land. The occasion for Psalm 106 is certainly relevant for our day, is it not? Think about the different forms of disciplinary judgment it seems we are experiencing right now. Our days here in America, in the Western context, are often marked by a, a, a remarkable loss of peace. Many lament a remarkable loss of liberties, a breakdown of social cohesion, and an increasing fear among the population. What is the source of these things? Well, Psalm 106 teaches us that underneath it all, underneath all the superficial accounting that the news-gathering institutions would have you assume, underneath it all, the reason for this mounting unrest is an unrepentant heart. Unrepentant hearts indulging personal and corporate sin. Boil it down, that's the root. That was the root in Psalm 106 at the time of the authorship here. It's the root in our day as well. Yet it nevertheless is evident that the steadfast love of the Lord is all the while magnified, even in light, and in some ways more so, in light of the unfaithfulness of the people. How impatient is the Lord? How steadfast His loving kindness toward us? He is so patient, He is so steadfast and kind, that He endures with His people in spite, and all the while they are in sin. Though He brings His judgments by way of discipline, he does not, time and again, he does not utterly destroy them. And invariably, the reason he doesn't utterly destroy them is there is a mediator interceding on their behalf. And we will see in the course of our text here that that took the form of Moses in the old. But of course, we know with New Testament clarity who that prefigured. We have a mediator interceding on our behalf such that our own stumblings are not our ultimate undoing because Christ prays for his church. Thus, the long-suffering of the Lord is only magnified in times like ours and in times like the exile as the occasion for Psalm 106. So how should we take this psalm? Let us marvel that the grace and mercy of God is so enduring in spite of human corruption. Listen to this bit of commentary. This is from the Plain Commentary. Quote, The 105th Psalm is a meditation on the covenant performed on the part of God. That was our last chapter of consideration in our psalm series. Psalm 105, the theme is God keeping up his end of the covenant. Now, Psalm 106 is quite different. Same covenant, different party. It goes on. The 106, the 106 on the covenant as kept by Israel. So Psalm 105 is a meditation on the covenant performed on the part of God. Psalm 106 on the covenant as kept by Israel. They both dwell on the predestinating will of God, electing men to holiness and obedience and the mode in which human sin opposes itself to that will, yet cannot make it void. So we have a contrast. In Psalm 105, the perfect faithfulness of the Lord to keep up his end of the bargain, as it were, his covenant promises. Psalm 106, the woeful track record of the people, time and again, failing in their duty to uphold the covenant. But nevertheless, the sovereign will of God through it all, unthwarted by human sin, continues apace. Psalm 106 is a prayer also following the instructions of Solomon. That was our worship text, 1 Kings 8, 46 through 50, 
where the people were instructed, if you're ever in exile due to the consequences of your sin, direct your prayers toward this place, namely the point of contact between a holy God and a sinful people. Turn your hearts to what the temple mount represents and lift your prayers of salvation toward the God who alone can rescue you. Psalm 106 is a prayer following the instructions of Solomon toward the house of God pleading for restoration. May we lift similarly our praise and our prayers toward Jesus Christ who came and tabernacled among us according to the opening of John's gospel. And may we do so in faith that in him, in Christ, remains hope for repentance, redemption, and restoration. Repentance, redemption, and restoration. Let me give you a heading and four points this morning under which we'll consider our text today. Here's the heading. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember the following. Number one, the true hope of glory, verses 1 through 6. Number two, the source of provision, verses 7 through 15. Number three, the cost of rebellion, 16 through 23. And number four, the place of promise, verses 24 through 27. These are things the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. First of all, the true hope of glory. 106.1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The true hope of glory resides in the nature, unchanging character, eternal matchless goodness, the uh, untiring, faithful, compassionate, patient, love, grace, mercy of Yahweh, the almighty covenant-keeping Lord of the covenant. Verse 5, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, and then the final phrase in that verse, that I may glory with your inheritance. What is the hope of glory? The hope of achieving, of procuring the promises that the covenant represents. Well, it is Yahweh's steadfast love or Yahweh's works. The work of of the Lord is the true hope of glory. And this is why the psalmist says, give thanks not to the promise of hope and redemption through a mere human agent. No, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Do not give thanks to a hero by the design and ordination of mere men and his ideas and some Babel building complex or some carefully you know, engineered technocratic state uh, solution for your future. No, the Lord alone is good and only he has the steadfast love that endures forever to be patient with a people as they stand in, yes, violation of his covenant and in need of his redemption. The steadfast love of the Lord, his work of patience, mercy, and grace holds out true hope of glory, true hope of salvation. What is biblical remembrance? The theme of our text in this message, the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. There is a biblical weight to the concept of remem remembering that is more than what we might at first assume. That is to say, biblical remembrance is more than maintaining a factual record. In our day and age, we might think we have sufficient memory so long as history is recorded, it's in a textbook, it's on the shelf. 
You know, at a meeting, you might take minutes, put it in the file, and then you have a memory, a record of what took place. You know, the cameras are rolling and the internet is recording virtually everything that goes on. So we might think in our day and age, never has there been a time in the history of technology where more memory is possible. And we judge the quality of our phones, our electronic devices, and the databases of our computers by how much quote unquote memory is possible. Is this what is meant by remembrance biblically? No, it's far more than this. Biblical remembrance is more than maintaining a factual record. Listen. Biblical remembrance is to retain a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate in light of God's revealed truth. Appropriate in light of God's word. It is a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate in light of divine revelation. So if you do not retain a frame of mind, a consciousness, a worldview, a conviction, a testimony... If you do not retain a pattern of behavior, steps of faithful obedience, an orientation of your own will and soul that is in accordance with who God is, then biblically speaking, you're not remembering, you're forgetting. Now, the factual record was maintained. The Bible was there at the time that these words were written. They're obviously preserved for us to read as well. And so it is in our day and age, if you look for just a record of mere facts, the Bible has never been printed in more languages and copies in all of world history than it is in our day. The average American, if you told me, owned five copies in electronic and printed form, I would certainly believe you. I'd maybe even believe more. Nevertheless, we are a forgetful people. Generally speaking, in our culture, we have not been biblically remembering the true hope of glory. It's more than maintaining a factual record. It's retaining a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate in light of who God is and how he has revealed himself in his word and how he has revealed himself to you in your salvation. Therefore, the true hope of glory is invested in Yahweh's works, and we are called to remember that. This call to worship the Lord and praise Him on account of His steadfast love is a perennial call to worship. That means it's an appropriate call to worship in each and every age. It reminds us that the primary functions of covenant, a primary function of covenant is to provide a framework whereby God's people can observe, can mark, can record, can behold, can glorify, retain a right frame of mind and a pattern of behavior for his matchless goodness and his long-suffering kindness. I wonder if you've ever been bored in church. And maybe you said as much in your more, I don't know, younger days or whatever. Maybe you admitted as much. And say someone was bored with church and you ask them, I wonder, why do you feel that way? And they say, well, there's the same, basically the same message every Sunday. Jesus came, died for our sins, rose again in his blood is eternal life. And you can almost hear, can't you, in that tone of voice that this message has grown trite, an old hat. It's grown um, something that's merely a cliche. And with that as our heart and attitude, we need to fight it to the core of our being. And we need to remember that the reason that the work of Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary and the purchasing power of his blood is featured prominently in every biblically ordered service on the Lord's day. The reason why is because we must be held accountable to retain a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior that is appropriate in light of what Jesus Christ has done. If you have not lived every moment of your past week 
as if, because you were, saved by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the shed blood of God become man, the once for all and only unique sacrifice that made that possible. If you have had moments in your life where you lapse in your understanding, guess what you need to hear? You need to hear the message of Jesus Christ dying for sinners once again in your ears. Thus an altar is erected as it were through the proclamation of the word and the worship of our Lord and Savior every week because the true hope of glory is found in these places. And biblical remembrance demands that we hold ourselves accountable to the rock of our foundation, the source of our eternal hope and the means whereby we are saved. And this is part and parcel to the theme of Psalm 106 and indeed the theme of a rightly ordered church service even today. These works that contain the true hope of glory are beyond description. Notice verse 2. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Kids, can you answer that rhetorical question? Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Is there any answers? Jesus can, that's correct. As far as mere, mere, uh, excuse me, mere humans are concerned, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Somebody answer this rhetorical question. Mere humans are concerned. The answer is no one. Jesus can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord. Good answer, Theo. However, no mere human can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord. What does this mean? No mere human can comprehend and declare sufficiently all of the power and all of the glory of what God has done. This doesn't mean that we can't understand in part his works. It doesn't mean that we can't proclaim and should in part his works. It merely means that the works of the Lord are so incredible that they defy human limitation. They defy mere human description. They are greater than the limitations of the English language. They're always greater than our best attempts to recount them. Similarly, the praise that he deserves. Who can utter, utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or verse two, con, 2 continues, who can declare all his praise? No one mere person can declare all the praise that God is worthy of. He is worthy of still more praise than what worship any one of us could possibly offer. I want you to notice the contrast between the record of God's works in Scripture and in our mind and confession and the record of human heroes that we record in history. On the one hand, the record of God's works in Scripture declare him truthfully, yet our understanding is always limited. That is to say, God is always more glorious than even our growing ability to understand him. However, this is totally contradictory to the way that we record our heroes in the roles of remembrance culturally. That is to say, almost always, human heroes are more glorious in the historical record than they were in actuality. Not so with the Lord. The Lord's glorious works are manifest in so many mighty ways that words fall short of describing him and human consciousness falls short in its ability of properly proclaiming them in their absolute fullness. So it is just testimony to Romans 1 and further language in Psalm 106, when it says, they exchange the glory of God for the image of the ox that eats grass. In other words, men are tend to celebrate and exaggerate the works of men and diminish and minimize the work of God. And Psalm 106 calls us to repent of this tendency. 
to repent and to remember the mighty works of the Lord, which are beyond description, and his mighty glory, which is beyond our ability to offer him the praise that he deserves. Now this hope, this true hope of glory is applied in this way. Verses 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, when you show me favor to your people. It's applied through the church of Jesus Christ, ultimately speaking. Oh, young people, are you ready to play the stop game? Yeah. Kids, you ready? Okay, what you're listening for is a reference to the church, okay? Or hear, hear this. You're listening for a reference to God's people, okay? So when you hear a reference to God's people, shout stop and tell me what it is. You ready? Here we go. Remember me, O Lord. Me. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that pronoun. O Lord, when you show your favor to your people. What is it? Your people. So your people, that defines the people of God, right? Let's keep going. Help me when you save them that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. What is it? Chosen ones. So we have your people and chosen ones. Let's continue. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. What is it? Your nation. That I may glory with your inheritance. What is it? Your inheritance. Very good. So the young people have identified four terms that refer to the church. Your people, your chosen ones, your nation, your inheritance. Very good. And me. Your people, your chosen ones, your nation, your inheritance, and me. So this is the hope of God applied, the hope of true glory applied. In other words, that those who are counted as God's chosen ones, those who are his nation, those who are his people, those who share in his inheritance, they are the ones that have the hope of glory assured. And this is why the author cries out that he would be counted among the church, that he would be counted among the covenant community, counted among the people of God. These are the elect heirs that Peter speaks to us about in 1 Peter 2. You remember what Peter refers to the church as? Sojourners, elect, and exiles. So Peter, in his message to the church, identifies with the author of Psalm 106. This is an exile writing of hope of future glory so long as he's counted among God's people. Just as Peter tells us there is hope for future glory as long as we are counted among God's people, even if we live in an era of exile, of traveling, sojourning. Uh, nevertheless, if you are elect, there is hope. So notice verse 3 before we close in this first section. This is what the wicked forget, but the righteous remember, the true hope of glory. Verse 3, blessed are they who observe justice and do righteousness at all times. As we read these verses, we find biblical remembrances in view. In other words, if somebody truly remembers the works of the Lord, how will he respond? Not just with a memory verse, he'll respond by observing justice and doing righteousness. Biblical remembrance is a change. It's a reordering, again, of what we've said, a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior for an individual, for a community, indeed for a nation. The Bible commands, the Psalm 106 commands, that those who remember what the righteous remember, who invest, are invested in the true hope of glory, which is the works of God Almighty, they will demonstrate that they understand this by observing justice and doing righteousness. That is, they will display values that are appropriate or commensurate or line up with the praise that God deserves. They will display values 
that are appropriate for the praise that God deserves. A people or a society who fear the Lord will uphold these things, that is, justice and righteousness. They will celebrate and affirm the attributes of God by organizing their lives and culture and their human affairs according to His law. This is to say that Psalm 106 affirms this point. True worship manifests itself in reformation. True worship manifests itself in a renewed frame of mind, a renewed pattern of behavior, and ripple effects that reach out even into the areas of human relationships, including observing justice and doing righteousness. You've heard of the phrase New World Order. And uh, this is common, and oftentimes it's accompanied by an acknowledgement that there are those in positions of authority, manipulative power, and elite class who seek to reorganize the globe, the human affairs according to a new world order. So long as they do so independent of the word of God, their efforts will always be futile and fail and will lead to death, destruction, and judgment. But nevertheless, the Bible holds out, if you will, a true world order. And this is where life and thought are reorganized according to God's holy word, such that to remember him is to pattern our thinking and our behavior around his standard of justice and what righteousness truly is with reference to its only ultimate standard, the law of our Lord in Scripture. True worship manifests itself in the changed heart through regeneration and then changed life as fruit and reformation whole-scale renovation of the life of an individual, and yes, indeed, even the eventual reconstruction of society. This is the vision that Psalm 106 holds out. This is something the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. Major point number two, what do the righteous remember, but the wicked tend to forget? Well, this would be a source of provision. Verses 7 through 15 expound this by referencing two historical occasions, but they open with a heading in verse 6. Notice what our author says, both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. So you'll notice in the structure of this psalm, it's similar to the way I try to organize my sermons. I'll open with a heading and the number of points underneath, right? Well, verse 6 is like a heading the psalmist uses. He says, we and our fathers have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we have done wickedness, and then the rest of the psalm, or the greater portion thereafter, gives examples of wickedness and iniquity that he and his fathers have committed. So what is the iniquity of the fathers as cataloged here? And what is the source of provision, therefore, that the wicked forget, people forget in their wickedness, but the righteous remember? Well, the first reference is to the crossing of the Red Sea. We pick this up in verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. That word consider is similar to remembrance. The wicked do not consider, do not remember, to not conform their thinking and their pattern of behavior to the wondrous works of the Lord. For instance, in verse 7, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. There's further study available to you if you check Exodus 14. We'll turn there this morning, but Exodus 14, 10 through 14, you can see what happens. God, as we have charted in our, uh, some of our Genesis references, has delivered the Israelites out of Egypt by an amazing 
historical display of his wonders. The tenfold plagues have fallen upon the Egyptians, all the way up to Pharaoh's household, even killing the firstborn. And suddenly God has released the death grip of slavery and oppression by this occupying force and told through the mouth of his stuttering shepherd's servant, translated by Aaron, let my people go to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, against the hardness of his own heart, has complied. You would think that this is enough for a miraculous intervention to grant a million people faith as they head out of that nation. If God will give them victory over Pharaoh's authority, will he not give them victory over the Red Sea? Nevertheless, what do the wicked forget? They forget the works of the Lord. And giving ten flags to declare decisive victory over the pantheon of gods of Egypt and the authority of the emperor Pharaoh. God had defeated this empire in those ten plagues and the people forgot and therefore they stood before the sea with Pharaoh's armies behind them quaking with fear. But Moses, the righteous servant of God, remembered God's works and proclaimed them and commanded that they look at the sea and see once again the mighty works of the Lord. In other words... In Moses' role, he was bidding the people, proclaiming to them, do not forget the source of your provision. Do not forget the source of your protection. The angel of the Lord, manifest in cloud of glory, moves from in front of the people to behind, creating an impenetrable shield to protect them from the most powerful military force on the earth at that time. Should this not have been enough of God works, God's works to give the people encouragement that he will preserve them even unto the promised land, even if it means going through the Red Sea? It should have, but it didn't because they were not remembering. They allowed their frame of mind to move from the fear of God to the fear of Pharaoh and his armies. They allowed their frame of mind to move from God's promises of provision in Canaan to the reality of this military force hot on their tail. So there was repentance that was needed. And so it was. He saved them for his namesake, verse 8 records, that he might make known his mighty power. And so God did. What did he do? Verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. And you can get a record of this if you go back, as we mentioned, to the source of provision documented in Exodus 14, 10 through 14, and also in Exodus 15, where an epic ballad was recorded. And the uh, very words and lyrics are available for you to read this day. Each one of these instances in history was a memorial occasion. God in his grace granted tangible victory and a tangible revelation of himself so that people might point to that very thing and not forget. And even the words of this epic Holy Spirit-inspired ballad could serve that purpose. And don't tell me they forgot that song as far as data points are concerned. It's recorded in the very Word of God. It's in our Bible. It was available to them. But like we said before, there's a difference between words on a screen and those words lived out through a heart that is convicted to walk accordingly. There's a difference between a hymnal on the shelf or under your seat or in the word of God and those words of confident security and assurance in a mighty God working their way through your pattern of behavior and your mentality such that you grow in your faith. And so that was the purpose of this memorial. The crossing of the Red Sea was by God's design to rebuke the forces of nature, the Red Sea, rebuked the forces of man, the powerful Pharaoh, and demonstrated that he was Lord of them both. 
He's Lord of the chaotic forces of nature and the sea. By a breath of his nostrils, he can set thousands, millions, I don't know, billions of gallons of water in two gigantic heaps and make a dry path for his people to walk down. And he can disarm Pharaoh in one night as his angel of death comes and reaps judgment with a sickle taking the firstborn from every family who's not under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And so he did so. He saved them from the hand of their foe and he redeemed them from the power of the enemy. But they were to remember in this instance that the source of provision, the source of protection was Yahweh, the covenant keeper. They were not to forget. Nevertheless, this is what the righteous remember, but the wicked forget. So in their wickedness, their memory was so short and sinful amnesia crept in and pretty soon they were complaining. The second major historical event that is referred to is in verses 13 and 15. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. And the Lord, they put God to the test in the wilderness, and he gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. And here, the source of provision was not affirmed, was not valued, Mean, uh, namely manna provided from heaven. The people were not content with this source of God's divine provision. They cried out for more. Thus God gave them their desire in the form of coil, and the people were basically drunk on meat. And he taught them a lesson that their fleshly appetites were not to govern their mindset and not to govern their pattern of behaviors, and that they would lead to death. And so it was. Even as he fed their bellies with quail, while the bird meat was still between their teeth, a plague broke out among them. And Numbers 11 records that people were keeling over right and left. As the consequences of sinful appetites were illustrated, yes, you may pursue the lusts of your flesh, but they will end in certain death. And this happened until intervention by God's steadfast love and mercy. Every Person who binged themselves on a diet of quail deserved to, to die. Nevertheless, the Lord is to be praised because his steadfast love endures forever. And in his matchless goodness, he extended mercy and grace unto them. The place was named Kibrith Hatava. Kibrith Hatava. What does that mean? In the Hebrew, it's translated graves of craving. Graves of craving. In other words, the wages of lust, the wages of sin is death. The craven appetites of sinful people always lead to self-destruction. And there was a whole graveyard with too many headstones to count, you know, at a glance that proved as much. So when the people looked upon that graveyard, let's say, with crude headstones, I don't know what they used to mark those graves, but as they stood weeping, as the plague ravaged their numbers, and now with much less, they'll continue their journey. Should it not have been burned into their consciousness, the consequences of living according to your craven desires, to the lusts of the flesh? Yes, it should have. This is what the righteous would remember, even while the wicked forget. These things are stood up, these moments in the history of God's people as memorial stones. And they yet remain for us to behold today. We're reading them, are we not? In Psalm 106. So let us read with righteous comprehension. Remember and apply these truths. Major point number three. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember the true hope of glory, the true source of provision, but also the cost of rebellion. Verses 16 to 23 illustrate this. 
When the men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flame burned up the wicked. This is speaking of the rebellion of Korah, if you will. And if you want to turn to the cross-reference, let's touch on one here at least to get the context historically for these words in Psalm 106. This would be Numbers 16. Numbers 16. The chapter opens thus. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eleb, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. They rose up before Moses with the number of the people, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I want you to notice the great heresy, the great wickedness and blasphemy that is implied in these statements. The people are not holy in and of themselves. They require a mediator, a priest who can intervene on their behalf. No man can stand in the presence of God and live, and Moses represented this office. Without someone who pleads on your behalf, who offers a sacrifice in your place, without the priestly role, no man can stand before God and live. Do you want proof of this? Do you want proof of this? Just continue to read the story. What happened to those who thought, oh, we can, you know, captain our own destiny. We can create our own salvation. We can represent ourselves. We don't need the priesthood. We don't need God's appointed leader. We don't need God's appointed typological Messiah. We can do this ourselves. Thank you. As soon as he finished speaking, verse 31, all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And so they all, and so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, the place of the dead. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. Verse 35, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. There are those today who count themselves as Christians who say, I just can't imagine a loving God would create a hell and send people there. These are people who do not read their scriptures with comprehension. These are people who substitute themselves as a standard for righteousness over and above the immutable word of an almighty holy God who is matchless in his goodness, yes, steadfast in his love, but never compromises his justice. If this is not hell, what is it? When the earth opens and swallows the transgressors who say, I don't need a mediator. I can be my own God. I can be my own savior. If this is not hell, what is it? When fire breathes forth from heaven and scorches those who are defying God's means and method and appointed anointed ones for salvation. And so what is this to teach us? It's to teach us the cost of rebellion. There is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain and there is a necessary mediator and a high priest and the shed blood of a worthy sacrifice is the only way we can escape the swallowing earth of Sheol and the scorching fires of Hades. That's it. That is the only way. This is what the wicked forget and define away by their perverse so-called theology by their heretical rejection of the righteousness revealed of God and all of Holy Scripture. But this is what the righteous remember. 
They live in light that their own sin deserves a swallowing earthquake. Their own sin deserves the fires of hell, and they escape it only when they trust their mediator to intercede on their behalf. Only when they trust the high priestly role of one Christ Jesus, the greater Moses, the superior one who can plead by the, on the cost of his own blood that their sins be atoned and paid for. What is the cost of rebellion? Well, it's illustrated in Korah's rebellion, but it's further illustrated in the golden calf incident. Verses 19 through 23 of Psalm 106 document as much. They made, quote, 19, a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses... His chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And there we have a record right in Psalm 106 of the priestly role and intercession of Moses on behalf of the people. Nevertheless, we see the cost of rebellion in these passages. In Numbers 16, it was the swallowing earth and the scorching fires of judgment. In Numbers or in Levitic, I'm sorry, Exodus 32, verses 25 through 29, I believe, is the record. The Levites are commissioned as God's deputies of justice and slay 3,000 of the people because they worshiped a golden calf, and they did so justly and rightly. And the Lord himself says that redemption has been purchased at the cost of your sons and your brothers. In other words, because this horrible crime, this sin, this rebellion was organized against the holy God, someone must die. And then it continues, the devastation, the cost of rebellion, a plague breaks out among the people, and only when Moses intercedes on behalf of the people is there a way of escape made. And this is what Psalm 106 commemorates. Because of your sin, because of my sin, because of the sin of everyone born in Adam, someone must die. And we see this evidenced on the day when the angel of death took the firstborn in the plagues of Egypt. And we see it in the Israelites' own camp when the Levites, as delegated, deputized agents of God's justice, wreaked havoc with their swords, killing 3,000 deserving sinners. And we see this in the course of the plagues that would hit Israel again and again. And isn't this interesting? I thought we, they might have said amongst themselves that plagues were reserved for the real wicked ones, like the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the ones who should get plagues, not us for craven desires, feasting on quail, not us for rebelling against Moses and his authority, not us for breaking the second commandment, making an image and worshiping it, these golden calves. No, that would be the response of the wicked. The response of the righteous is to see those tab tablets in the hands of their priestly mediator, their prophet Moses, in his arms, descending the mountain, and realize in light of the very truths written on those tablets of stone, their act of horrible blasphemous, God-rebelling, false worship was condemned. It was a hell-worthy sin. Moses smashed those tablets. And even there is a picture of the significance of this moment, perhaps indicating, perhaps communicating to the people that they had just smashed, they had just broken his law. They had just destroyed their relationship. They had violated the terms of the covenant. And only a God who would graciously give them a second copy of those commandments, 
who would graciously supply a mediator through the office that Moses pictured to intercede on their behalf and would graciously supply in the picture of the lamb a sufficient substitute payment only in this, these provisions of his steadfast love and his mighty works was their salvation to be found. Again, this is what the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. Let us close this morning with our final point. Furthermore, the wicked forget and the righteous remember the place of promise. Verses 24 through 27 in Psalm 106, our author records, Then they despised the pleasant land. Kids, what was the pleasant land that is referred to here? Promised land, that is correct. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. You see, what the wicked forget and the righteous remember is that there is a place of promise. Numbers 14, 1 through 38, the whole chapter, in fact, records this moment in Israel's history. You'll remember the spies are called to go in and, and, and see the lay of the land, and then they return. And all except Joshua and Caleb have a fearful report. They say there's giants in the land. No way we, we can survive, you know, a wayward, wandering people in the midst of these people of great strength. And so we probably should just go back to Egypt. Then the soul voices that remained faith, in faith that there was a place of promise that God had provided in spite of the obstacles that stood in the way were Joshua and Caleb. And they were the only ones among that group that were able to enter the promised land as a consequence. Why? Because God was teaching the people at this memorial moment in their history that the place of promise is something the righteous ought to remember in spite of what they think stands as an obstacle in between. What is the pleasant land? It's the place of promise. What do we consider a pleasant land? And what do we hold out hope for as a place of promise? Let me make an application to our day. The voices that cry out in the streets, that are boiling over with outrage, are crying for justice. You see this in buildings burning and people marching from coast to coast in our land today. And what are they crying out for? What is this guttural reflection of the culture screaming in the streets? They're screaming for a pleasant land. They're screaming for peace, for resolution, for justice, and so forth. But the question is, where do they have their hope invested? The people said, oh, there's giants in the land, the pleasant land of God's promise. The order of his righteousness and justice is fraught with all kinds of fearful eventualities and fearful enemies. I think the pleasant land is back in Egypt. At least though we were slaves, we had leeks and onions to eat. Let's go back there. So long as the voices in our hearts, so long as the voices in our streets are crying out for a pleasant land that will be achieved through some political solution, some leftist policy, some politician hero, they're crying out for a return to Egypt and the bondage of human chains and slavery in spite of the slogans and the signs, in spite of the hashtags on the internet. There is a pleasant land, but there are no shortcuts. It is by the righteousness and justice of God's law established in the heart of the individual, which he judges him falling short by, repents before a holy God, and then begins to live in light of this is the only hope of a pleasant land. Remember what we said before? That revival or repentance 
legitimate worship always works its way out into eventual repentance, into eventual reformation. True worship manifests itself in reformation. And this is the only way a pleasant land is possible. Yet the people, instead of believing God's way, God's means, and God's provision and place of promise, they were content to murmur in their tents. Verse 25, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Let me suggest to you that the voices of outrage in our culture are more often than not merely murmuring in their tents. Have you murmured in your tent lately? Have you complained in a short-sighted way for what is sacrificed and lost, the unrest of our hour? Have you placed faith in a mere human hero to provide for you hope for a better tomorrow? Are you caught up in this whole, you know, emotional roller coaster of promise of salvation falling short and then fears of destruction looming large over and over again, these cycles? I encourage you, Psalm 106 would tell us, don't remain murmuring in your tents, but instead have faith in the pleasant land. Continue to order your life. Remember, order your thoughts and your pattern of behavior according to the word of God, his righteousness, his justice, and so forth. Model this in your home. Crave it as you read the word. Proclaim it to those who will listen. And as you do so, you will be practicing biblical remembrance. You will remember what the righteous do not forget, but the wicked despise and reject. Verse 26, Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would not make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Welcome to 38 years of wandering till all you faithless are dead. 38 years of one, more years of wandering until all the faithless are dead. These are the exile consequences. This is the discipline of the Lord when his people do not take seriously his word. And brothers and sisters, we may well live in an hour where we're headed straight for exile. And perhaps you already feel the chafing of the chains on your metaphorical wrists as we enter into an era where the discipline of God may be necessary because we have placed faith in a pleasant land other than that which God alone prescribes. And I would encourage you that even in exile, there is hope. This was the context in which these words were written. Though they would be scattered among their lands, there was hope. So long as it remains today, there is hope. So long as you're living and breathing, so long as you're hearing these words today, the scriptures say, is the day of salvation. Psalm 106, 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. I pray that those that God has appointed to salvation across this globe across the apostate West, would be called out, would be hurt, would hear the word of God. And against the backdrop, the contrasting wickedness, the backdrop of human sin, metastasizing and showing how filthy we are deep in our hearts as a culture and individuals and so forth, I pray that the righteous truth of God and the message of his unadulterated gospel and the proclamation of the true church, those who are the elect exile sojourners, would go forth and announce that there is yet hope of a pleasant land in Christ Jesus. And where should we look for reassurance and for peace and for boldness in proclaiming as much? We need to look to the Word of God. We need to take Psalm 106 seriously and apply it in our lives and the context in which we live. We need to hold out hope that in Christ alone, the greater Moses, as Hebrews identifies him, the superior high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice in him and his shed blood, 
is the hope for us to endure the wiles of Satan, to endure the woes of the valley of the shadow of death unto where the good shepherd will lead us, glorious, fully consummate reunion with a holy God. We remembered this last week in communion. The Lord's table is an occasion for remembrance. That is, that we would not soon forget, but biblically remember, not just the factual record retained, but indeed maintain a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate and light of God's word. His word revealed in ordinance. His word revealed in these words. His word revealed in preaching. His word revealed in God-glorifying hymns that we have sung unto him today. So may I encourage you to this end. And finally, let me close making an appeal to the unbeliever in the hearing of this message. If you have not repented before a holy God, there comes a day of accounting where the earth will open up and swallow you and the fires of hell will consume your wickedness and a holy display of God's justice. And there is only one escape, the Passover lamb. The lamb that is Jesus Christ who shed blood took that punishment that hell-swallowing, or that earth-swallowing judgment, and that hell-burning fire, there is one who took that upon himself, and by his stripes you were healed. Do you believe? Do you believe? If so, repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Put your old life behind and join us in the cause of sanctification, growing in application of our faith. Pursue the righteousness, pursue the justice that God prescribes in his holy word. And love that more than anything else. And remember what the righteous remember, that there is hope for true glory and the work of Christ alone. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the reassuring and convicting message of your Holy Scripture. We thank you for the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit that yet touches hearts dead in sin to awaken them to new life in Jesus Christ. Even in this dark day, your church will go forth unhindered, the true ones anyway, who cling to you and avail themselves of this unassailable source of power. Lord, convict us accordingly that we may be counted among them. Convict us accordingly so as your author has spoken that we may be found among your people, your chosen ones, your nation, and join your inheritance. We confess both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. But we see that this is deserving of your judgment, and we repent and turn. And we trust that Jesus Christ alone can satisfy that payment, Lord Jesus, that such that we can earn salvation. Lord, we confess these truths. I pray that we would live them out this week and that we would be bold to proclaim them to the praise of your name and the advancement of your kingdom and your sovereign purposes, even in our day and age. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.